Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Thank you so much to our online donors who make this podcast possible by giving at paradoxgiving.com. Today we are looking at 2 Chronicles 36, and this episode is entitled Jehoiachin's Fate. All the way back in September, we started our series in the books of 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Today, we bring this 10-part series to a close with a discussion in 2nd Chronicles 36, the last chapter of these two books. Now, if you've been with us during these past nine sermons, then you know that Chronicles tells the story of the descendants of King David. These descendants began to rule over Israel and Judah sometime around the year 1010 BCE. From this year forward, Chronicles tells the stories of all of the generations of kings and queen who reigned on the throne of Jerusalem with success and with failure. During our last sermon in this series, we discussed the life of King Josiah, who is considered by Chronicles to be the last great king of Judah. After his death on the battlefield in 609 BCE, 2 Chronicles 36 tells us that his son, Jehoahaz, received the crown of Judah. Now, there's not a lot of paintings or portrayals of Jehoahaz in the art world because Jehoahaz reigned for just three months before Egypt showed up at Jerusalem's doorstep with military force and decisively conquered Jerusalem. The Egyptians then removed Jehoahaz from the throne and then replaced Jehoahaz with his brother, Eliakim. Now, after giving Eliakim the throne, the Egyptians then changed his name from King Eliakim to King Jehoiakim, which apparently is something you can do when your military is stronger than the nation you just conquered. So the Egyptians then ask King Eliakim, I mean King Jehoiakim, to be completely loyal to Egypt, and then they skip town with Jehoahaz, the former king and the current king's brother, in tow as a prisoner. Now the new king Jehoiakim reigns in Jerusalem for 11 years and remains devoted to Egypt throughout his tenure on the throne. However, this loyalty to Egypt makes the other empire to the east, Babylon, very angry. So angry, in fact, that Babylon launches an attack in 597 BCE on Jerusalem. The Babylonians win, and the battle isn't even close. After conquering Jerusalem, the Babylonians take money and sacred relics from the temple, as well as the king that is on the throne, Jehoiakim, as a hostage. In the wake of their destruction, the Babylonians install Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin, as the new king of Judah. Before we go any further, I want you to know that the primary person we'll be discussing in today's podcast is King Jehoiachin. If you're one of those Bible hipsters that loves obscure characters from scripture, then today's podcast is just for you. You can post on the gram to all of your other friends asking them, who did your church talk about this weekend? Baby Jesus? I mean, he was cool about five years ago, but I think Jesus is overplayed now. Yeah, at my church, we talked about King Jehoiachin. You've probably never heard of him. Yeah, I can send you a link to my pastor's sermon, but trust me, Craig's sermons are way better on vinyl. If that's you 
then you are welcome. Today's sermon is just for you. King Jehoiachin is so far underground that if you asked Pope Francis himself who King Jehoiachin in the Bible is, I'm not 100% convinced that he would know. So Jehoiachin, the underground king, is crowned as king by Babylon to replace his father, Jehoiakim, who is imprisoned by the Babylonians. There's just one major problem with King Jehoiachin. That is that King Jehoiachin is only eight years old. Now, if this sounds familiar, it's because when we discussed our story of Josiah, who is Jehoiachin's grandfather, he also took the throne at eight years old. And if you've read the book of 2 Chronicles up until this point, this will sound doubly familiar because another king in the Davidic line, Joash, took the throne at just seven years old. Out of 21 ruling monarchs in the history of Judah, three of them, or one in seven, are under the age of nine when they take the crown. This is flat out insanity. But while Joash went on to reign for 40 years and Josiah reigned for 31 years, Jehoiachin, our underground king, only reigns for three months. Do you realize what this means? It means that Jehoiachin barely had any time to watch the Paw Patrol before his reign came to an end. Jehoiachin's reign is so brief that it makes the next line of the Bible one of the funniest lines I have ever encountered in all of Scripture. I laughed out loud when I read this line in preparation for this sermon. Because after the author of Chronicles tells us that an eight-year-old boy is the king and that his reign lasted for a meager three months, the author writes, quote, Jehoiachin did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, close quote. Oh, really? Did Jehoiachin stay up past his bedtime? Did he get caught with his hand in the cookie jar? Did Jehoiachin play Roblox without his mother's permission? Did Jehoiachin not share his toys with his sister? What is it? That this eight-year-old boy did that God looked down from the majesty of the heavens and declared with great disgust, evil, just pure evil, that boy is a sinner. Anytime that the Bible tells us that God quickly judges an eight-year-old boy king, we should pause. This judgment from on high should cause all of us to ask, why did the author of Chronicles believe that God harshly judged this eight-year-old boy and conclude that this child was irredeemably evil. We can actually answer this question if we understand that our collective understanding of God has changed drastically since the book of Chronicles was composed. When we consider the Bible, we need to remember that these words are from a different era than our own. During biblical times, human beings did not possess the scientific method, they did not possess Newtonian physics or germ theory. They did not possess weather satellites or encyclopedias. Instead, the people who composed the Bible believed that the reason the universe existed in the exact way that it did is because God chose for the universe to be that exact way. For the majority of the Hebrew Bible, also known as the Old Testament, everything, everything was the will of God. You got sick because God was angry with you. 
You got wealthy because God was happy with you. God sent the drought that caused your crops to wilt to teach you a lesson. God also sent the rain that caused your crops to grow to reward your religious devotion. If robbers broke into your home and stole all of your possessions, well, you deserved it. Because why wouldn't the all-powerful God prevent that robbery from happening if the all-powerful God didn't want that robbery to occur? So for the majority of the Hebrew Bible, everything was the will of God, both the good and the bad. So this theology applied specifically to the kings of Judah. Because of the visibility and prominence of their position, the nation of Judah looked at the kings and thought that everything that happened to them was in fact the will of God. If a king lived for a long time and won numerous battles and amassed an extravagant amount of wealth, then all of those signs led the people of Judah to believe that God approved of that specific king. Even if that specific king raped a woman and then murdered her husband to cover his tracks, that king could still be viewed as a spiritual role model if he died as an old man with great wealth and great military might. And while these ideas seem backwards to us today, and trust me, these ideas are backwards, this theology informs the way that the authors of the Bible perceived and understood God throughout multiple generations. Which brings us back to our question that we asked a few moments ago. Why did the author of Chronicles believe that God harshly judged this eight-year-old boy and conclude that Jehoiachin was irredeemably evil? When we ask this question, we have to remind ourselves that our understanding of God has changed considerably since the time that the Bible was written. And a king with a long life was understood to be blessed and approved by God, while a king with a short reign was understood to be cursed and rejected by God. So when King Jehoiachin reigns for just three months, the entire nation assumes that Jehoiachin did something drastically wrong in that brief time on the throne to make God angry. That is why his reign lasted for only a short time. Because everything that happened was the will of God. So Jehoiachin must have done something to deserve the removal from the throne, even if he was just eight years old. Now, I personally disagree with this theology. And while I disagree with this theology, I can understand the theology. And if I can understand the theology, then I can better empathize with the person who holds this theology. Because we must remember that empathy is one of the central reasons why we read scripture. Returning to our story, we can then read about the last verse that Jehoiachin is mentioned in the book of Chronicles. The text reads, In the spring of the year, King Nebuchadnezzar sent and brought Jehoiachin to Babylon, along with the precious vessels of the house of the Lord, and made Jehoiachin's brother Zedekiah king over Judah and Jerusalem. So let's do a quick recap of the story of Jehoiachin. In 597 BCE, Babylon invades Jerusalem and takes Jehoiakim off the throne. Babylon then places his eight-year-old son Jehoiachin on the throne and takes his father Jehoiakim back to Babylon as a prisoner. Three months later, in the spring, Babylon returns to Jerusalem and removes Jehoiachin from the throne. 
The Babylonians then replaced Jehoiachin with his uncle, King Zedekiah, who is the last king of Judah in this era. The Babylonians then returned to Babylon with the boy Jehoiachin as a prisoner. After some time, the Babylonians allow Zedekiah to reign for 11 years on the throne of Jerusalem before they feel that Zedekiah is rebelling against them. Then in 586 BCE, Babylon returns to Jerusalem again and this time shows no mercy. They level the city of Jerusalem. They ruthlessly execute King Zedekiah. They force all of the wealthy and educated people of Judah to abandon their homes and march back across the desert to live in Babylon. The people of Judah arrive in a foreign world with a foreign language and a foreign government enforcing laws that will ensure that they live foreign lives. This is the exile. And the suffering of this tragedy is immeasurable. Imagine with me, if you will, living through this conquest and exile that began in 586 BCE. How long do you think you could survive living in exile in Babylon? How many years do you think you could live in Babylon with sustainable mental health? How many days could you keep a positive outlook on life for the sake of your children? How much stress do you think you might feel as you wonder whether you are going to spend the rest of your life in Babylon? Because this exile went on for months, and then those months turned into years, and then those years turned into decades. And from those months, years, and decades, people began asking the same question over and over again while they lived in exile. They asked, what did we do to deserve this punishment? Remember, the people of Judah viewed the exile as punishment from God because everything they experienced was the will of God, including this God-forsaken exile. So the people living in exile wanted to know, what did we do to deserve all of this? And during this exile, some historians got together and decided they were going to attempt to answer this question, to write a history that told people why they deserved this suffering of the exile. These historians looked back at the 425 years between the reign of David and the reign of Zedekiah and told the people of Judah's story with the agenda of justifying the action of God to bring about this whole exile as a punishment. These writings, composed sometime around the year 550 BCE in the land of Babylon, eventually became the books 1st and 2nd Kings, which are included in our Bibles today. Now, the thesis statement of the books of Kings is this. Our kings were so evil that God had to punish us with this exile. In this version of history, God sent messengers and prophets over and over again to warn the people of Judah that they were headed toward a disastrous punishment. But the people of Judah ignored God's prophets for centuries. And Judah's choices led God to enact the exile as a punishment. And to bring this examination of 425 years of history to a close, 
the author of Kings decided to conclude his work with a story about King Jehoiachin. We read in the last paragraph of the book of Kings these words, in the 37th year of the exile of King Jehoiachin of Judah. Wait, the 37th year? Remember when I asked you how long you think you might be able to last in exile? How many of you responded by saying, yeah, I could probably do 40 years before I start to break down? Probably not many of you. I don't think I could last for 37 years. I mean, I'm 37 years old right now. The exile at this point is literally a lifetime for me. 37 years the people of Judah are living in exile. The text goes on. We read, In the twelfth month of the twenty-seventh day of the month, King Evel Merodach of Babylon, in the year that he began to reign, released King Jehoiachin of Judah from prison. Now, what's unclear from the text is whether the exile of King Jehoiachin began when the Babylonians took Jehoiachin as a captive, or if the exile of King Jehoiachin began when the Babylonians executed his uncle, King Zedekiah, 11 years later. What is clear is that King Jehoiachin, who we last saw at the age of eight, mind you, is being released for the first time from prison at the age of 45 or at the age of 56. Jehoiachin served at least a 37-year sentence for the crime of being crowned king as an eight-year-old boy. And now, as a man who's been deprived from the very essence of his humanity, Jehoiachin is stepping into the sunlight of Babylon for the first time since he was eight years old. The text continues. We read, Babylon's king spoke kindly to Jehoiachin and gave him a seat above the other seats of the kings who were with him in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put aside his prison clothes. Every day of his life, he dined regularly in the king's presence. And for his allowance, a regular allowance was given to Jehoiachin by the king of Babylon, a portion every day as long as Jehoiachin lived. And these words are the last words in 1st and 2nd Kings. The history closes with the living descendant of David, the last living descendant of David, eating food under the supervision of the king of Babylon and receiving a regular allowance. The end. What a downer. Can you imagine if someone took the book of Kings and turned it into a movie? In this final scene, we see Jehoiachin eating at the table of the king of Babylon. He's grizzled, he looks depressed, and he eats silently. And then the camera pulls out, and the scene begins to fade to black. And then we read, directed by the author of Kings. Imagining this as a movie, I picture there being a stunned silence in the audience that is taking this movie in. As the credits begin to roll, everyone thinks, that's it? Kings would be one of those movies where the audience files slowly out of the theater and people don't really talk to each other. Instead, they hang their heads low. And as they are walking out, everyone wonders why they didn't spend their money on watching Dumb and Dumber 2 
instead of Kings 2 because Kings 2 is just depressing. What makes this really interesting to me is that most Christian movies that we see never, ever, ever end on a depressing note, like the Book of Kings. The Christian movie formula is quite simple. The movie starts by everything going wrong for the main character, then the main character finds God, and all of a sudden everything goes miraculously right for the same main character. After everything goes right, the credits roll while the audience listens to the latest song for the newsboys. That's how you make a Christian movie. And when we consider the book of First and Second Kings, this pessimistic and depressing ending sticks out like a bitter pill in the sugar-coated sea of Christian media. Why does Kings end with despair? Shouldn't the author be willing to give us a little bit of hope? I mean, this is a book about God, right? Instead, the author ends with a scene of Jehoiachin being treated like a child, even though he's in his mid-40s or 50s. I want you to keep the question of why Kings ends with despair in your mind. And we'll continue to examine the story of Judah living in exile. Because the end of the story of Kings is not the end of the story of Judah. Approximately a decade after the history of the Kings is written, an unbelievable, unexpected, and unprecedented miracle occurs in the most unlikely way imaginable. A Gentile from the East, a man named Cyrus the Great, shows up out of nowhere with an army from Persia and declares war on Babylon. Persia wins. And rather than forcing the people of Judah to move further east into the land of Persia, Cyrus decides to allow the people of Judah to return to their native land. After 47 years in exile, the people of Judah are going home. Now the miracle becomes even more miraculous when Cyrus gives the people of Judah money to rebuild their cities and even to rebuild their temple so that the people of Judah can return to the religion of their ancestors. Now, of course, there's a catch. And that catch is that the people of Judah are required to pay heavy taxes to the Persian Empire. While no one likes taxes, Cyrus is still viewed as a messenger from God by the people of Judah, because paying taxes to Persia is significantly better than staring down the barrel of extinction in Babylon. Not only that, but Cyrus's intervention is viewed as evidence that God still exists, that God has not forgotten about her people, and that God will soon restore the people of Judah to their former glory because God's punishment is over. That's why God sent Cyrus, they thought. And so the taxes are inconvenient, but I picture the people of Judah thinking to themselves, we're going to be free of these Persian taxes in just a few years. 10, maybe 20 years tops. 200 years later, the people of Judah are still paying taxes to Persia. The people of Judah also are not a free and sovereign nation, and they are not very powerful. Everyone and their mother in Judah is asking the same question. Shouldn't God's punishment be over by now? And because of that, they asked an even more important theological question. Are we still the people of God? Because if we are, then why did we end up like this? 
The people of Judah want to know why they have been relegated to perpetual mediocrity for the past 200 years. With those questions hanging in the national consciousness, a man sits down and decides to tell the 425-year-long story of the history of the kings to answer those questions. His work later becomes known as First and Second Chronicles, which is part of our Bible today. Now, the thesis statement in First and Second Chronicles is told from the perspective of the people of Judah. And the thesis statement is that, yes, we are still the people of God because we still have the temple. For this reason, Chronicles comes across as religious propaganda, which we've talked about at length on this podcast. Chronicles always talks about how good the religious institution and the priests are, like just all the time, right? Now, I personally don't find the book of Chronicles on its own to be that interesting because it's propaganda. But when we compare and contrast this history in Chronicles with the history of Kings, well, then I find Chronicles in that context to be fascinating. Even though Chronicles discusses the same historical events as Kings, even though the author of Chronicles had a copy of Kings sitting in front of him as he wrote Chronicles, and even though Chronicles and Kings sit side by side in Christian Bibles today, the book of Chronicles changes the recorded history and blatantly contradicts the book of Kings. If you do not believe me, then remember the ending of the book of Kings and compare it to the ending of the book of Chronicles. The last paragraph of Chronicles does not end with Jehoiachin. In fact, Jehoiachin's release from prison, his meals at the king's table, and his regular allowance are not even mentioned in the book of Chronicles. Instead, the author cuts straight from Zedekiah to Cyrus the Great. Let's read together the last paragraph of Chronicles. We read, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of King Cyrus of Persia so that he sent a herald throughout all his kingdom and also declared in a written edict. Thus says King Cyrus of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and the Lord has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord his God be with him. Let him go up. And that is the last word in the book of Chronicles. That is how you end a Christian movie. You gotta love the positive, hopeful ending, right? Cue up the newsboys because we're going home feeling inspired. Here in the Bible, we have two accounts of history separated by different thesis statements, questions, and 200 years. The author of Kings decides to bring their history to a close with an ending of crushing despair. The author of Chronicles decides to bring their history to a close with an ending of abundant hope. Now, why are the endings of these books so vastly different? The answer is Cyrus. The book of Kings is written before Cyrus intervened and brought an end to the exile in 539 BCE. The author wrote this work, which is Kings, after living in exile for 37 years. The author of Kings had no guarantee that things were going to get better for him 
or for his people. In fact, you and I can imagine that the author of Kings gave up any and all hope of a divine intervention and liberation after, I don't know, 10 years, 20 years, 34 years of living in exile. So it's easy for us to read the book of Kings and dismiss it as depressing because we never lived through the suffering that the author experienced, which inspired the book of Kings. Conversely, Chronicles is written around nearly 200 years after the miracle of Cyrus's intervention. The people of Judah in that day and age, you know, 350 BCE, are, are demoralized and discouraged. They are wondering why they still need to pay taxes to Persia. They are wondering why God has not liberated them. They are wondering why they are not a greater nation if they worship the greatest God. So in this history, the author of Chronicles reminds the people of Judah about the miracle of Cyrus showing up out of nowhere and liberating the people of Judah. The author calls them back to the story of Cyrus and tells them emphatically, yes, we are still the people of God. Don't you remember Cyrus? If God can send us a miracle in the form of Cyrus two centuries ago, then that same God can send us a miracle today. Cyrus is the reason that we have two histories with vastly different endings. Which brings us to today. Right now, we are living through a public health and social exile, the likes of which the world has never seen. Our current social exile is, in many ways, different than the Babylonian exile. For one, we are nine months into our exile, while the people of Judah lived in exile for 47 years. We also are allowed to live in our own homes with Netflix and couches, while the people of Judah possessed only a few commodities while living in the foreign society of Babylon. However, our exile is similar to the Babylonian exile in the fact that we are suffering at a, at a rate, a capacity, that is difficult to measure. In this past year, I've heard numerous people wonder aloud why we are putting our lives on hold for a virus where 99% of the people who contract it will end up surviving it. While I can understand that skepticism, this idea misses the larger point. According to the CDC, the number one killer of Americans each and every year is heart disease with over 600,000 deaths each year. Cancer is number two with just under 600,000 deaths each year. And in a distant third is accidents. Now, the University of Washington is estimating that from April 1, 2020 to April 1, 2021, that 538,000 Americans will die from COVID-19. That means that COVID-19 is on pace to be the number three killer of Americans in one year. And COVID is on pace to kill as many Americans as cancer does. My friends, we are suffering. We are suffering as a community, as a nation, and as a species. And the numbers are staggering when placed in the proper context. We are currently living in a social exile because the virus is killing us at nearly the same rate as cancer. Now, here's where we discover a major difference between our social exile and the Babylonian exile. 
The major difference is that we know a miracle is going to happen. And that miracle is a vaccine. The people I trust the most as experts in the field have told me that we are very close to having an effective vaccine being distributed to us in the near future. While it will take time to get the vaccine to everyone, and it will take time to see noticeable changes in our daily lives, the fact is that we will most likely eradicate the virus and bring an end to our social exile sometime in the next year or two. The vaccine is our modern day Cyrus. And the big difference between our story and the story of Judah and their exile is that Judah did not have a clue that Cyrus was going to show up. But we know that a vaccine is on the way and that a miracle is going to happen. This is the gift of science. Now, when the vaccine takes hold and we can all go back to church and see our greeters again and hug each other and sing songs in a crowded room with our masks off and all pretend to laugh at my jokes again and talk for hours after church, on that day, I believe that the ending of Chronicles will resonate with us on a deep level. The triumphant proclamation of Cyrus at the end of Chronicles will remind us that God is with us, that God made space for a vaccine to be possible, and that God is still good despite the suffering that we endured. But that day, when we go back to church, is not today. Today, we are stuck in our separate rooms. The virus is deadlier in America right now than ever before. And we are hoping and we are praying that we can hang on for just a little bit longer to see the day when the vaccine arrives. On days like today, the ending of Chronicles rings hollow because we have not experienced the miracle that Chronicles professes will one day come. And with a hollow ending at the end of Chronicles, we then turn to the ending of Kings. Remember how Kings ends? Jehoiachin is released from prison and is under close surveillance. While it is true that Jehoiachin is experiencing the most freedom since he was an eight-year-old, he is still required to comply with government protocols that he would not choose for himself. Jehoiachin is given an allowance, and it's not as much as he would like, but at least it's something. And then the book ends. Earlier, we asked the question, why does Kings end with despair? But upon a closer look, from the year 2020, as we fully anticipate a miracle on the horizon, I think the question changes when we read the book of Kings. I think the question moves from why does Kings end with despair to does Kings end with despair? <laughs> because for me, I hear the story of Jehoiachin today in 2020, and I feel like the author is trying to tell me something. With no promise of a miracle of Cyrus or a vaccine on the horizon, the author tells us yeah, this isn't really the life that we would have chosen, but maybe we can find something worth living for if we adjust to our exile. And the story at the end of Kings of Jehoiachin 
the last survivor of David's royal descendants, as the king of an exiled people of Judah, is a story about finding meaning in life in the face of overwhelming suffering. This story begins by eating food in front of you and accepting welfare from the government. And if we can start with those two basic steps, maybe we can find something that's worth living for. In just a few weeks, we will celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, who we Christians believe to be the very Son of God. Now, here's what's interesting about the Christmas story. In the time of Jesus' birth, there was a national expectation that a Savior, a Messiah, a King would rise from the line of David and with a mighty and miraculous hand, liberate the people of Judah from the oppressive boot of the Roman Empire. The people often told stories about the miracle of Cyrus and how this soon coming Messiah would be even mightier than Cyrus was before him. And then Jesus Christ was born. Not in a royal palace, but in a manger. Jesus did not live as a king. Instead, he lived as a peasant. He didn't own land. He didn't own a home. He often ate the food that others generously gave him. The one thing a Messiah was supposed to do was bring an end to the Roman Empire. Instead, the Roman Empire brought an end to Jesus. But with his time here on earth, under the oppression of an empire, Jesus Christ lived. He experienced volumes of suffering, but he also loved with exponential grace. No matter how much the Romans taxed him, no matter how much he wept, no matter how much he lost, Jesus still showed us a way to find meaning in the broken suffering of our own lives. And Jesus declared that life was good. The shocking revelation of the Christmas story is that Jesus Christ lived a life that was much closer to Jehoiachin than Cyrus. Jesus was not a powerful conqueror like Cyrus. Instead, Jesus fully entered into life as a marginalized citizen. Jesus declared that there was something beautiful and worth embracing in all of that suffering. This is why Christians believe that if you want to find God today, you, you don't take a trip to the White House. Instead, you find God among those who have been cast out by society, kicked out of the church, those who are grieving the loss of their loved ones. Because among those people is where we believe Christ is found, because that's who Christ was. My friends, the story of Christmas is a story about finding meaning in life in the face of overwhelming suffering. And while this will be the strangest Christmas season of my lifetime here in 2020, the fact is that this is what the story of Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ did not wait to arrive on earth when all of human suffering was eradicated. Instead, Jesus Christ arrived as a baby in the darkness of human history. And Christ's life is a testament that we can find meaning in the face of suffering. And so, my friends, may you find that life is beautiful, meaningful, and wonderful this Christmas season, 
in the face of a global pandemic. And may you see and embrace Jesus Christ in all, right here and right now.